Let's turn then to the book of Deuteronomy. If you have your Bibles, want to read along with the scripture lesson, it will be from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Before we read that, I want to tell you that 6,000 is the number that I came up with this morning. 6,000. If my math is right, 6,000 people across the world will not live before I finish my remarks today. 6,000. 6,000 people are in the last hour of their life. 6,000 people will breathe the last breath in this life that they'll ever breathe. Many of them are old and perhaps expecting it. Certainly some are young. Death is the farthest thing from their minds. But the cold, undeniable granite wall of fact is that 6,000 people will pass away across the world by the time I finish my remarks here today. What are we supposed to do with that fact? Am I trying to discourage you? Am I trying to rain on our parade? Am I trying to prevent you me and others from enjoying life? No. It's not what I'm trying to do. But I am trying to call out a fact that is not deniable in a world that is just so infatuated with what is called scientific reason, which more and more is irrational, but a world that is obsessed with Things that they say are undeniable, that are fact, that are science. That's one we cannot deny. What are we supposed to do with that fact? What are we supposed to make of the reality of that truth? How are we supposed to apply that reality to our lives? Nearly two every second is the number. I think exactly, it's about 1.8. Every second pass from this world into the next. And as we think about that and we wonder what we're to do with it and make of it, many times people decide that they're just not going to think about it. They're going to set it aside. They're going to live their lives with it in the distance somewhere. Certainly no one in their right mind denies the truth of the fact of death, but we live largely our lives separate from its reality. And we are living in a time that in my own life, I have seen, and if you're over 40 years old, you've seen it as well. I have seen the disappearance of the biblical worldview in our nation and John talked about that Thursday night in our study. I've watched it. In the early days, I didn't know what I was seeing. I didn't know what I was watching. The, the bricks still seemed solid. 
the foundation still seemed secure. We still talked about God in most places. My high school graduation, there was still prayer there. We couldn't pray at school. We couldn't have, you know, couldn't talk much about it, but at least we acknowledged it at important events. Presidents still talked about God, at least in times of tragedy. But we don't anymore. I have watched this biblical worldview vanish in my own lifetime. According to Barna, in the last 25 years, the number of people with what is referred to as a biblical worldview has declined by 50%. That's 2% every year of people that have abandoned. The view that this book that we preach from and teach from, and for the balance of my life, I have applied my heart to know, is rejected. Not only by the world and those who would openly profess to not believe in God, but largely even by those who say they do. 9% is the number of people that are 50 years and older who, who maintain a biblical worldview. And I know I've not defined it, but that alone should alarm us. If you got 10 people together, it's possible you don't have anyone who has a biblical worldview. That's of people 50 years old and older, 9%. 5% is the number for those 30 to 49. 5% gathering a random number of people in the world and you just pulled people together. You'd have to gather at least 20 people to have a hope that one might have a biblical worldview. The number for those 18 to 29 is devastatingly alarming. It's 2%. 2%, you're now going to have to gather a random group of 50 people just to have a hope that one of them sees the world the way God describes it in the scripture. These numbers should guard us, I think, in some way against the surprise or confusion that can set up in our hearts of, about the condition of our nation today. And again, John referred to that Thursday night. When people turn from God, it's it becomes confusion. The decisions of a nation with so few holding to the Bible, they're bound to be poor decisions. They almost cannot be but poor decisions. If the way that most people think today makes sense to you, I want to tell you that's probably a red flag with regard to your own biblical worldview. If we think like most people think today, that should be a cause of concern for us. Now, before going further, please do not hear what I will say to you today in any way as saying that I believe myself or our church or anyone else who holds to a biblical worldview makes me think that we are better than anyone else. That's not at all what I think. That we somehow have more intelligence or that God loves us more than other people. It's not what I think at all. 
This was the mistake and the error of the Pharisees. Who began to believe themselves better than other people because of what they believed themselves to be according to a set of laws and rules and regulations that, frankly, God never gave in the first place, many of them, and turned them into a, pre a practice of life, a way of life, a way of dressing, a way of talking, a way of behaving, washing your hands before you eat, or it's ungodly not to, going less than, make sure you don't walk more than what is it, three quarters of a mile, something less than a mile on a Sunday, or you are ungodly and you're somehow less than other people. That's not, that's not the place from which I'm coming today. As I bring to you some thoughts that God has placed on my heart from Deuteronomy chapter 8, my intention here today is merely to call attention to something that we've tried to call attention to for many years. God has directed our hearts here once again, direct our attention to the vanishing biblical worldview and the grave danger that that places us in danger here in this world, surely, certainly. But danger in the world that is yet to come. It's grave danger. It's dangerous for us to be where we are as a nation and to be where you might be, if indeed you are not one who knows God and understands the scripture in light of the Lord's assistance through his Holy Spirit as he guides and directs your life. I know in many places that my voice will already be dismissed and turned off. I know that if somehow God were to have made it possible or make it possible in the future for millions of people to hear what we're saying here today. I know that most would leave, laugh me off a stage, mock, ridicule, dismiss. I understand that. But neither am I surprised by it. I pray this morning that God would grant us a vision and a bit of an understanding of the reality that we are in as a nation, as a church, as Christianity at large, that we would understand truly the work that is in front of us. Let's read in Deuteronomy chapter 8, as God through Moses is encouraging his people to maintain a view of the world that God had given to them instructing them. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, he had encouraged with strong language to teach your children about me and what I have done for you. And here in Deuteronomy 8, he's speaking to the whole congregation. And we read in verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would be humbled, or excuse me, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. 
nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. You shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Now comes the warning. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. lest. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart will be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you power to, to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. The Bible is a book, a set of books, 66, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, that according to Peter, as he told us, each one written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. There are all kinds of theories about how that inspiration came to those who wrote it, and I think maybe there might have been a variety of ways, but ultimately we recognize those who hold to a biblical worldview Anyhow, that this book contains the view of the world and the word of God that we ought to have as we go through this life. As he said in verse 1, 
the whole commandment that I command you today. I begin this morning with simply telling you that the biblical worldview is based upon the Bible. That sounds as though it's the most obvious statement one can make. But I think it's very easy for us at times to remove ourselves from this word and begin to follow something else and still call it biblical. The biblical worldview is rooted in the scripture. It is not rooted in what I think. It's not rooted in what I feel. It's certainly not rooted in opinion polls today. It's not rooted in my word. It's not rooted in my parents' word. It's not rooted in even those who I look up to and the Lord has used in my life to encourage me to, to a life of godliness. It's not rooted there. A biblical worldview is rooted in the scripture. We have been given an objective word from God. Now, I realize today that there are a lot of complexities to that because my mind and my heart can misunderstand what God has said in his word. But he has promised that he would send his spirit to those who truly desire to know and understand his word to help us to understand it. But we must recognize, first of all, that the biblical worldview of which we're speaking is rooted in the scripture. An objective word that he has given us to guard us from our own hearts, to show us how to find God in the first place to keep us close to him as we live our earthly lives in the second place and to remind us of the promise that he has given to us of a home in heaven for all of eternity in the third place. And let me ask you, those three things, do you have them as, as a possession in your life? I know God. I am desiring today to walk more closely with him. And I am looking forward to the day that I leave this world and step into an eternity that God has prepared where I will be with him forever. This biblical worldview is told to us and taught to us in this book. It's not determined or possessed because we merely claim to be Christian or claim to be a member of some particular denomination. This biblical worldview is rooted in the scripture. Arizona Christian University did a study. 70% of Americans consider themselves Christian. Only 6% of them actually have a biblical worldview. I fear we, the church, Christianity, have not engaged in the battle on the weakest front of Christianity today, which is the battle for the Christian worldview. It's being challenged. It's been dismissed entirely on many hands. And so I want to just take a little bit of your time this morning and point out some very fundamental truths about the Christian worldview, what it means to believe God, what it means to believe the scripture. Number one, it starts out in Genesis 1.1. We read it again Thursday night in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. A biblical worldview is one that absolutely, fully 
possesses, believes, and trusts that it was God who brought all things out of nothing. And that includes you and me. It includes everyone who has ever lived and everyone who ever will live. It includes every mountain and every valley. It includes every river and every ocean, every tree, every twig of, 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 that, that blooms off the tree, every dirt, every piece of everything. We believe God created it. He called it out of nothing in Genesis 1 when it says that God created Bara, the Hebrew word, which is not just the word formed or shaped. It is the word that says to call forth from nothing. Bara, B-A-R-A. It's not a word that can be applied to anything that human beings do. We cannot call something out of nothing. Never have, never will. Einstein even said it. Fundamental law of science Matter is neither created or destroyed. I know it has changed and manipulated. But God in the beginning did what only God can do. He called everything into existence. And that is a fundamental truth of a biblical worldview. Do you find it odd? It shouldn't be odd to us that the enemy of our souls and yours has gone so far to try to dismiss this idea from our nation. People are called and considered simple and naive and foolish to believe in this, but it is no more foolish than any other belief that is out there, and it's less foolish indeed. God created it, absolutely everything. That's number one. That begins it. You don't believe that. You don't have a biblical worldview. If you don't believe that that bird that is flying from tree to tree was created by God, you don't have a biblical worldview, not an active one. If you don't believe that it was God who created man, who then created uh, the essential uh, elements that are necessary to create a vehicle so that we could build them and make them go. If you don't believe that it isn't God at the root of it all that is making everything work, don't have a biblical worldview. Your thinking is not biblical. If you think that it was just mere coincidence and chance that we have evolved to such a place that babies are born to women and it wasn't God who gave them life, you don't have a biblical worldview. If you think for a moment that your life is yours to do with as you please, you don't have a biblical worldview. Because God created it. Not only did God create us, but secondly, God gave us a law to obey, did he not? What he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Krisis, K-R-I-S-I-S is the Hebrew. And we think of death and how he was, what he was saying to Adam and Eve was that you'll die and you'll be no more. And that word in the Hebrew doesn't even mean that. It means separation. In the day that you eat of this, you will 
be separated from me, is what God was saying. And that is, by the way, the definition of death, to be separated from God. And that's why this physical death of this body that one day will take me, it's not death for me. It's a separation to eternal life. The promise of which God gave me when I was 11 years old and he saved me. But first and foremost, in the biblical worldview, God created absolutely everything. And that includes every man, woman, and child who's ever been born, is alive today, or ever will be born. And then he gave us commands to follow. And he gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, one command. Just one. Gave us everything else. Gave us work to do in the garden to glorify him. Gave us companionship. Gave us love. Gave us purpose and meaning. And isn't that what most people are starving for today? Something to bring meaning and purpose out of this seemingly meaningless random world that we live in. God gave them all of that and he said, just don't eat of this tree. And if you're thinking, why did he give them that command? Why did he let them sin? Why did he let them be in a position? If he loved them, why did he even give them that opportunity? And we've answered that before. We'll answer it again. Had that tree not been there, man, Adam and Eve could not have shown their love and obedience to God. They would have been robots. They'd have been like the birds of the air. But they were created uniquely. And they were different. And so are you. And you know it. You know it. God called you from nothing. He gave you life. And he gave everything else life. And he created absolutely every other molecule in the world and in the universe. God has given you a command. And that command is this, according to Jesus. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. Love him with all of it. And then love your neighbor as yourself. On these, Jesus said, all the law and the prophets hang. So God gave you life and he gave you a command and he gave you a command and it was in his prerogative to do so. It was his, was it not his prerogative? Many people today, you tell them that God expects something from them. They will, they will object to that. What right does God have? People might think. To expect something from me. What right does he have to do with my life? What he says he has a right to do. Well, let's read Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So God says to Jeremiah, go down to the potter's house. The one who shapes clay, the potter. And he says, go to him and then I'm going to tell you something. So Jeremiah goes on, verse 3, So I went down to the potter's house, and there he, the potter, was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, so he messed up. But then it says, And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. So Jeremiah has gone to the potter's house. God says, I want you to go there because I'm going to give you a lesson. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to teach you something. And he goes and he sees the potter and he's shaping the clay and the potter makes a mistake or something happens. And then the potter reshapes it and puts it in the, in the way that the potter said, according to the word of God, the potter said was good to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, says Jeremiah. O house of Israel, can I not do with you 
as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, declares the Lord. The biblical worldview recognizes the truth of that scripture. God, you are the potter and I am the clay. It is not me that shapes me so much as it is you. You allow me to have freedom of choice and will that you've given me that's unique among all other creations. And yet, Father, I recognize, I acknowledge that I am like the clay on the potter's wheel. And I pray, God, that you would shape me into that vessel that you would have me to become. And I know, Father, that if I push against you and resist you, that you will allow me to make a mess of myself. You will allow me to make a mess of my life. But God, may you help me to let you shape me. It is your life. It is not mine. Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. And you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Among the attributes of a biblical worldview, the idea that God is and as is our maker and as our maker has every right to do with us as he sees fit seems to have all but vanished in the average mind today. God created everything. He created you. Every person, he gave humanity a law to obey, and we broke it. That's third on the list of a biblical worldview. We broke God's law. Genesis 3, 6, and 7. That awful chapter without which you cannot have a biblical worldview says in verses 6 and 7, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food after listening to the enemy of man's soul, listening to the one who hated her and Adam. Make no mistake, Satan is a master deceiver. He will appear to you as though he is on your side. That he's just looking out for you. That he's just saying, really, does God have a right to say what he did? Really, does God have a right to do what he has done? So after believing him and being deceived by him, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. In other words, you could eat it. It, it was possible. That it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And therein lies the heart of the temptation. She took of its fruit and ate. And she gave some to her husband that was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Biblical worldview, point number one, God has created it all. Point number two, he gave us a command. Point number three, we broke it. Broke it fully aware of what it meant to break it. God didn't lie to us. He did not deceive us. He said to them, if you eat of this tree, you will surely 
die. And in Romans 5, verse 12, Paul, basing upon that, says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So all suffering, all death, all sorrow, all grief, all of these things, they are a result of the sin that man brought into the world through his disobedience. That's what the Bible tells us. And that is what we believe who know God. Because we know that we ourselves have sinned. It's one of the first things that God comes and reveals to us. As I've shared so many times in my own personal testimony. Pretty good little boy in my eyes. I'd had something of an unusual first 11 years. Born into a family whose parents were drug addicted and a mess. Many siblings, in fact, siblings I didn't even know I had until I was an adult, dropped off in St. Louis at a children's home, just left. I know it was intended for our better. Adopted, went to church with the family that adopted me from the time I was a small child. Went up to the front of the church as a small boy. I wanted to be like my new big brother. But when I was 11 years old, God convicted me. I wouldn't have used that word at that point. I just knew I wasn't saved. I knew it wasn't right between me and the one who had created me. And I knew that I was the one who was the sinner. It was I who needed to repent and believe the gospel. It was I who had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I had inherited that. Nobody taught me how to do it. Nobody made me do it. I chose it. And I understood at that point that I was a sinner and that I needed forgiveness. Biblical worldview teaches us this. It, it confirms the reality of what we experience in our lives. The Bible does. It is a mirror that reflects to us ourselves and how we have come short of what God has called us to. And by the way, all of us have fallen short of this. I don't care whether you've been raised in church your whole life or not, whether you wear ties and look good on Sunday or not. I don't care whether you consider yourself Christian or not. Every last one of us are in need of forgiveness from God for sin. And the Bible tells us that. Thankfully, Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 is not where the story ends in verse 15. God himself reveals to us the fourth tenet that I want to tell you today of the biblical worldview. And that is that God himself has implemented and fulfilled the plan of redemption. He didn't leave us. He said in Genesis 315 God I, says, I will put enmity, enmity between you, that is Satan. I will put enmity or strife between you, 
Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And then God says the specific, he shall bruise your head, Satan. This one who will come from the woman, whom I will send to the world, he will bruise your head. You'll bruise his heel. But he is going to conquer you. He is going to overcome what you have tried to unravel here today, Satan. You think you've won. Can you imagine over the thousands of years of human history how frustrated Satan must be time and time and time again he thinks he has the upper hand just to realize God always has the upper hand. God has always been prepared for every eventuality. When I was in college, I watched a play, I know I've referred to it a number of times, where God is shown in the first two chapters, he's created the whole world, and he's created everything, and Adam and Eve are in the garden, and everything is good, and then they portray chapter three, how man fell from the law, and they portrayed God, and the Lord, and the Spirit, as they were surprised. I remember thinking even then, God wasn't surprised. I didn't catch God off guard. Satan, you think you've won here, but all you have done is secured your defeat because I'm going to send one into the world who will redeem, who will pay the price for this sin so that anyone who believes in him, according to John 3.16, will have eternal life. God himself created this plan. Salvation has never been, and it is not today, and it never will be a plan or work of man. He wouldn't. It couldn't be. We couldn't have dreamed up or pulled this off on our own. Only God could. I want you to consider with me as I read through this very quickly. I want you to take a breath before we begin. I want you to consider all the prophecies and how statistically improbable or impossible it was for Jesus, one man, to fulfill them all, but he did. If you don't believe this biblical worldview and you think that those who hold to a biblical worldview are just crazy, unthinking, irrational people, I, I adjure you, I ask you today to give me two minutes of your time. Because this is what we believe about Jesus Christ and this is why. In the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came, he fulfilled so many prophecies, it boggles the mind. Let's listen. Born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 14. Come from the line of Abraham, Genesis chapter 1. A descendant, or Genesis chapter 12. A descendant of Isaac, Genesis 17, 19. A descendant of Jacob, Numbers 24, 17. From the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, 10. The heir to David's throne, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. Would be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7, 14. He would spend time in Egypt, Hosea 11, 1. A massacre of children would happen at his birth, Jeremiah 31, 15. A messenger would come first and prepare prepare the way for him Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 5 he would be rejected by his own people Psalm 69 8 he would be declared the son of God Psalm 2 verse 7 he would be called a Nazarene Isaiah 11 chapter 1 he would speak in parables Psalm 78 2 through 4 he would heal the brokenhearted Isaiah 61 1 and 2 he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek Psalm 1 
10, verse 4, and Hebrews 5, 5. He would enter Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. He would be praised by little children, Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. He would be betrayed, Psalm 41, verse 9. The price of his betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. The money from his betrayal would be used to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. He would be falsely accused, Psalm 35, 11. He would be silent before his accusers, Isaiah 53, 7. He would be spit upon and struck, Isaiah 50, verse 6. He would be hated without a cause, Psalm 35, 19. He would be crucified with criminals, Isaiah 53, 12. He would be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69, verse 21. His hands and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22, 16. He would be mocked and ridiculed, Psalm 22, 7 through 8. Soldiers would gamble for his garments, Psalm 22, 18. His bones would not be broken, Exodus 12, 46. He would be forsaken by God, Psalm 22, verse 1. He would pray for his enemies, Psalm 109, verse 4. Soldiers would A soldier would pierce his side, Zechariah 12 and 10. He would be buried with the rich, Isaiah 53, 9. He would rise from the dead, Psalm 16, 10. He would ascend into heaven, Psalm 24, 7 through 10. He would sit down at the right hand of God, Psalm 68, 18. He would be the sacrifice for sin, Isaiah 53, 5 through 12. He would return a second time. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Jesus fulfilled them all. In some ways, in some ways, and I don't want to overstate this, it takes more faith to not believe this. One man fulfilling these prophecies, undeniable scripture written hundreds of years before his life irrefutable evidence that this is indeed the things that happened to our Lord. This has always been a plan of God. That's a biblical worldview reality. That God made a way for man to be saved. Fifth, and we only have eight things to say. We'll move along quickly. Fifth, man has now one of two choices. God created everything. Including you and me, he gave us life. He gave man a commandment. Man broke it. But God made a way for salvation to be possible. Jesus Christ fulfilled it. He died on a cross, gave up his life, raised again on the third day. He's now at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you, calling you and me to himself. And now then, now then, the biblical worldview as it progresses, we have one of two choices. Repent and believe the gospel or reject it. That's number five. Number six, man now lives to serve one of two masters. It's a biblical worldview. We serve one of two masters, God or ourselves. Lump that into other men, mammon, as the scripture says, wealth. We can serve God or we can serve something else. It's a biblical worldview. When I put my life to something, I'm either putting it towards service to God or I'm putting it towards service to something else. And number seven, man has one of two eternal destinations. One of two. Heaven with God, hell without. A 
finally, much more could be added to this list. But these are fundamental tenets of a biblical worldview. These are the things that biblical Christians believe. These are the essential components of the Christian faith. And I believe that it is important for us to articulate them clearly today, perhaps more than ever. To be as Paul when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God and the salvation. To not hide behind political correctness, to not hide behind fear of the enemy who has no hold over us any longer because Christ left the tomb. These seven things are fundamental tenets of the Christian faith, and they have been fundamentally rejected by most in the world today. If you don't believe in the biblical worldview, then you have some alternative worldview. You do. If you do not believe these things, then you must be believing in something else. You must be believing about life that there's some other, there's some different origin. God didn't create the world. We evolved. I, I just, just want to simply ask you. I want to reason with you. Do you know that? Or do you believe it? How can you know it? In this world, once again, prides itself on scientific knowledge. We believe that God created everything. We believe something else. We believe that life's purpose is to honor and to serve the one who gave us life. Or we believe it's something else. What is it? We, we believe that there's, as, as Christians, as biblical Christians, we believe in these one of two destinations. If you don't believe in that, then you believe in something else. But listen to me now. You cannot know these things from a scientific standpoint. These things lie in the realm far above and beyond what the material world is capable of showing you. It just is. The scientist is by definition limited to the material world. He cannot tell you about things outside of this world that are deep things of the heart that are there, as God says in the scripture, as he's planted in the heart of man eternity. You ever heard anybody say there's got to be more than life than this? You ever heard somebody say, I'm just dissatisfied with my life. I don't know where it's going. I don't know what the purpose is. I don't know what the meaning is. Do you know what that is? That is God speaking to the conscience of the human being that he created. And the answer is yes. A thousand times yes. There's more to life than this material world. Oh, there has to be. There must be. I love reading C.S. Lewis and those like him who would tell you and teach you and write about the reality that at one point men realized that there was knowledge in this world of the scientific realities of this world, the rocks and the mountains, and we, we ought to study them and we ought to understand them. But C.S. Lewis and others would say, but there's a realm of knowledge that is beyond this world. And people used to not be dismissed out of hand when they would say things like that. 
but today they are. But it's no less true. The rock cannot write you an essay about where it came from. You are speculating about all of it. You're believing something. The scientist, by definition, is limited to the material world. We cannot learn about things that lie outside of time and this world from the scientist. We can't, no matter how learned or respected they might be. These other sets of beliefs will take you down a very different direction in your life than the one that the Bible reveals, which is a blessed way. We want to end with it in a moment. But you'll go the way of the world without even trying if you don't hang on desperately to a biblical worldview. All you have to do to go the way of the world and lose a biblical worldview is to just let go. The river will take you. It'll take you. The river of this culture, this demonic, dark, lost world, this river, a broad, this broadway, it'll take you there. These other sets of beliefs will take you to a very different place. You'll go the way of the world, as I've said, without even trying. It is the default position of the fallen human being. It can, by the way, also become the default position of the Christian if they don't spend effort at building and maintaining a biblical worldview in their own heart. If everything is rooted in this book, at least its root to God, and all in truth is here. Examine and consider, I ask you, how many hours a day, a week, do you spend in this book? Versus the number of hours that you spend listening to the view of the world that isn't biblical. We are in a battle for the very identity of Christianity in our times and in our day and in our lives. I don't have time to go through it, and I won't take your time to do so. But I encourage you to understand the difference between a biblical worldview and even a moderate Christian view, as it's defined by a society, an organization called the Nehemiah Institute. If you've not heard of them, I encourage you to look them up, the Nehemiah Institute and their studies on worldview. I want to read to you a moderate Christian worldview. This is not a biblical one, but this is the view of many that consider themselves Christians. When it comes to politics, this is the belief among so many. Law, that is the Old Testament, the law of God, it has been superseded by grace. Therefore, the New Testament has little to contribute to modern political discussion other than encouragement of fairness and integrity. From an economic perspective, this is the moderate Christian view today. Individual responsibility is good, but Christian love requires us to help others unconditionally. The biblical worldview, by the way, the, the biblical view of, of this topic, hard work and individual responsibility are rewarded. If you don't work, you don't eat, with the possible exception, of course, of those in trying difficult times or physical handicap or mental handicap. Moderate Christian worldview, when it comes to education, spiritual and secular education are distinct. Children receive academic training at school, whereas spiritual instruction is a responsibility of family and the church. We've somehow divided our kids and expected them to make sense of 
of both. And they don't reconcile. They don't fit. And so, they're forced to choose. If they want to be honest with themselves and their own hearts. And intellectually consistent. Religion, moderate Christian view, Christianity is a relationship with Jesus Christ, not a religion with rules and regulations. Repentance, if it is necessary at all, is for believe, uh, if it is necessary at all, should take a back seat to grace. And we've seen that run rampant. And finally, social issues. Love expressed through tolerance is the key. Calling the private or public actions of others sinful is judgmental, since only God knows men's hearts. I finished the sentences of many Christians today with that. Can't judge. Matthew 7, don't judge lest you be judged. And I don't read the very few verses that follow. It talks about the reality that he's talking about, hypocritical judgment. Finally, as we conclude today, the point of the biblical worldview. And I want you to listen for just a few more moments because I don't want you to think for a minute that I am just interested in making good little Christians. Nicely dressed little boys and girls, or that I'm just interested, or more importantly, that God is just interested in creating a bunch of robots to make, quote, children of God who have had the relationship uh, with the world somehow um, a truce made, and yet hang on to enough of Christianity to still claim Christianity. That's, that's not the point of a biblical worldview. It's not to just make those good little Christians. It is to make children of God who have had the relationship with their creator restored through the Lord's death and resurrection. There is a great danger of correct academics when it comes to a biblical worldview with no spiritual life. Again, the error of the Pharisees. It is to prepare, it is to remind us, to prepare us for the eternity that we are all now hurtling toward. I began and said 6,000 people would die while I am speaking here today, and they have. If you continue to do the numbers, as you know, in my mind, I always think down these roads. What does that mean per year? It's 56 million people every year. Four and a half million per month, 150,000 per day, 106 a minute. You and I will be one of those at some point in the future. We will. That's what this biblical worldview is about. It's not about anything less than that. If you're not ready, I have good news for you today. God is ready. God is ready to make you ready. God is ready to take you and shape you, put you on his potter's wheel and shape you and mold you into the person he has always desired and designed for you to be. And yet, because you are uniquely made, he says to you, come. He says to you, come to me. 
When I call, come to me. Come and repent and believe. Trust me. Turn from yourself. Throw yourself on my mercy. And I tell you today, he will abundantly pardon if you will do that. I read just a handful of verses and we'll be done. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. We want to actually read, I think, back up one. Verse 6 as well. Seek the Lord, Isaiah says, while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. God will forgive. He will pardon. He will say to you, now the blood of my perfect righteous son has been applied to your hearts. You don't stand before me any longer on your own merits. You stand before me now on the merits of my son who is strong enough and who lived a perfect life and satisfied the law that was broken. He satisfied the death that was that was designed uh, for those who who deserved it, he has taken their place. He's taken your place. And reread verses 7 through 10 of our text today for into a good land. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and of honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. You will lack nothing. That's where God wants to bring you. That's the biblical worldview. It's the only view, by the way, that holds any hope. It's the only one that holds hope. Because Paul said, if we just have hope in this life, we're of all men most miserable. But I'm not just talking about this life. I'm not just talking about this life. I'm talking about the life that 6,000 people have now entered who weren't there when I began. I pray that God would bless his word. I encourage you to just